Morning, everybody. You're looking good, may I say, looking healthy. It must be all that sugar and stuff that you haven't been eating since, um, since uh, Ash Wednesday. Happy Lent and, um, and, and greetings from me. Welcome, especially to, to those who are new and visiting. Always great to have you around. And uh, yeah, it's just a delight to be here, isn't it? A sense of God doing things, stirring things. Are you sensing that too? If you're not, let's just keep praying, God, would you stir within me? It all, all starts with hunger, I think, and desire. And um, let's be praying for those on Alpha. Again, I had a little text from Gareth this morning saying good things are going on. I'm not sure they're surfing down in Barry Island in the sunshine down there, but they're having a good time. And we'll be back here this evening celebrating the Alpha weekend and also um, a few getting baptized. Just three, I think, getting baptized tonight, but it's not too late if you want to be one of them to get very wet tonight. Um, here's my invitation to you. Do come and have a word. If you haven't been baptized, you're a follower of Jesus, uh, it's not too late. We could dunk you tonight. Um, I was reading a little bit earlier uh, this week about Helen Keller. Does that name ring a bell to some of you? Um, American woman. She died about 50 years ago this week, I think. Author, speaker, political activist. Had a huge influence and impact um, around the world. Very significant ways in things that she said and wrote. And all the more so because um, Helen Keller was completely deaf and totally blind. And one of the things I read that she said struck me. Uh, She was asked once if there's anything worse than being blind. And she said, oh yes, there's something far worse than being blind. It's being able to see but not have any vision. Poor eyes, she said this, poor eyes may limit our sight, but worse, poor vision will limit our whole lives. Found that very compelling. We're in a series on um, faith, daring faith for a life less ordinary. I'm suspecting there's nobody in the room who wants to live just an ordinary life, but a life less ordinary, a life more extraordinary in the power of God and by the grace of God. And Hills was reminding us that faith is about seeing. I borrowed her prop from um, last week. If you weren't here, I'll just model it the once, uh, just to remind you, a little visual reminder of what Hills was saying, that faith is about a way of seeing the world. Faith is about our eyesight. Faith is seeing from heaven's perspective, seeing through heaven's lenses rather than through our human physical eyes. The the deeper reality is how heaven sees. We want to believe, the world wants to convince us that what we see with our human eyes, that's that's what is, that's what's real, that's what's going on. No, God says there's a deeper reality than that, a different reality. It's a reality he wants us to see. And that's the life of faith. It's the life of seeing. It's the life of getting his perspective. And perspective matters because perspective, our views, are what shape how we think about things and our values and our principles and how we think about stuff determines how we then live and behave in the world, doesn't it? What's going on in here? We live inside out as human beings. What's going on in here then expresses itself on the outside in what we go after, how we speak, how we act, and so on. Proverbs 4.23, we quote it often here because it really matters. Be careful how you think, says the Bible, because your thoughts run your life. Jesus puts it another way. He says, repent. What does he mean? He means change your mind. That's the way that uh, that word works. It's about changing our mind, getting heaven's perspective on things. Romans 12, be transformed. How do you get transformed according to the Bible? You get transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind. It's all about the way that we think, which is similar to the way that we see. And God wants us to see his way. With eyes of faith. That's what this series is all about. What we're aiming to do, isn't it? As a church family together is grow in faith. We call it, yes, I'm a person of faith. I've got Christian faith. And there's that challenging question that we all have to ask ourselves. So where is faith in operation in our lives? Where in my life? What areas of my life are dependent on faith? 
Is there any area, in fact, that is dependent on faith in God? Or are we actually just kidding ourselves that we're a people of faith? Actually, we're not. And not only faith to see how things are. Remember, Hills is saying that, that um, we need God's perspective on reality now. Who, For example, our identity. We might look in the mirror and, and, and see things about ourselves and we don't like some of ourselves and we hear messages about ourselves that are not our true identity. The eyes of faith tell us, no, this is who you really are as a son and daughter of the King of Kings. Uh, so faith, massively important for the now, but also for the future, for the not yet for the what's coming, what could be. And God promises uh, to, that we'll have dreams, that God wants to give us vision for the future. He wants to show us how things could be through the eyes of faith. Acts 2, quoting the prophecy from Joel, you may remember it. I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men, I want to add, and women, will see visions. Your old men and women will dream dreams. Visions, dreams, very similar. God gives us gifts of imagination. Godly imagination. God wants us to be dreamers. So today's message in this series is this: daring in this series of daring faith, daring to dream, daring to dream. And I wonder what that, what that does to your spirit as you hear that word, daring to dream. Are you in connection with dreams that you might have now, or have had in the past, or want to have in the future? The reason I'm excited about this message is I is I believe that God wants to use it, not just in the 30 minutes we have now, but in the, the time to come, in these uh, coming weeks and months, to plant some new dreams in us as individuals, maybe as groups, as families, whatever. I believe he wants to plant some new dreams. I believe that he wants to dust off some old dreams that have got dusty and have been put on a shelf somewhere for some of us. I believe that he wants to kill off some self-centered dreams that we're living and replace them with some more godly ones that he has for us. I believe that he wants to encourage us in the dreams that we all may, already may be in touch with and are already pursuing, but he wants to inspire us further as we journey together. I think that's a pretty th exciting thing that he wants to do. I'm going to tell you about an amazing dreamer. Many of you will know his story. He, he comes in the Old Testament. He's a man called Nehemiah. And I think God has got some things to show us from this story of a dreamer who lived about 450 BC. If you don't know the story, something like that. He's a Jewish exile. He's in the court of King Artaxerxes, who's a king of Persia, because a whole bunch of the people of God have been taken over in exile a thousand miles east of Israel to um, modern-day Iran in, the, in, the, in the, the town of Susa. And uh, this guy, uh, Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to the king. In other words, he's one of the um, officials in the king's court. Quite a high position. And we're just going to read, Jason, thanks very much, the first four verses, or the first little bits of uh, the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, so that's coming from the land of Israel, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And just, we'll just pause there. In that moment... I believe a dream was forged in Nehemiah as he contemplated the news that he heard 
There he is over there in exile. Some people come, they tell him the news. And as he digests that news, um, a, a dream is forged. He then prays the most extraordinary prayer. I haven't got time to read the whole story today. He prays the most incredible prayer. It's a prayer of lament. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of repentance on behalf of the people who have turned their backs on God, which is why they've ended up in exile in the first place. But it reminds God, God, you said that you'd do something amazing. You promised that you would gather in your people into your place and there would be worship in your temple and your presence there. And God begins to, uh, Nehemiah begins to pray this to God and to remind him of what God said that he would do as he continues to think about what he's going to do. And if we move on to the beginning of uh, the next chapter in the month of Nissan, it's a Japanese car company, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, gave it to the king, and I, had, I hadn't been sad in his presence before because that was a dangerous thing to do. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? when you're not ill. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. What's going on, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said, what is it that you want? What's your dream? And I prayed to the God of heaven, took a deep breath, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? It did please the king to send me. And so I set a time. It's an amazing dream. You know the story, you know how it goes on. We haven't got time to delve into the whole thing. That is... Nehemiah's dream to to move a thousand miles back to west through dangerous country to where he had come from to rebuild the city and the walls and the temple of Jerusalem. I wonder if you have a dream. Certainly won't be that dream, but I wonder if you're in touch with a dream. What is your dream? Will you dare to dream? Mark Batterson puts it in different language. He says, what's your Jericho? You might know Mark Batterson wrote a book called The Circle Maker. One of the things that we're doing as a family in uh, Lent is to do the 40-day devotional called Drawing the Circle. And he says, Jericho was that place that represented a dream. It represented something that God has stirred. It represented a prayer to see something better. And, would you, uh, uh, and what's your Jericho? They circle the walls of Jericho. What are you circling? What is that you're longing, what is your heart, what is your dream that you're wanting to, to, as it were, pray circles around and see come into being? What has God given you? This is Nehemiah's. Have you got one? Dreams matter. Not going to dwell on this, but let's just consider why they matter for a moment. They matter because God made us to dream. God made us to dream. We're created in the image of a creator God. I love that song that we sang earlier, the kids song that we did. Um, everything made from the imagination of an amazing creator God. Well, his imagination is boundless and infinite. But friends, we're made in the, in the image of a creative God. So perhaps some of the most creative, some of the ways that we best mirror our creative God is when we exercise the imagination that he's given to us. We have a capacity, we're hardwired to dream and use imaginations. Look around this building. Um, the, the clothes that you're wearing, um, the, the, the way that electricity um, heats up water and is pumped into radiators, the heat, almost anything started with somebody's imagination, didn't it? It started with a dream. Change happens most often because it begins with a dream. Dreams and transformation finds its origin in somewhere, someone somewhere going, 
I want to do that. I want to see that change. I want something to be different. And it, it sets them on a course of pursuing something. And here's Nehemiah wanting to see change. March the 2nd, just a couple of days ago this week, was the 208th anniversary of the US Congress signing the act that ended or began to end uh, the abolition of the slave trade. Where did all of that start? Well, it started with a dream in Wilberforce and others, wanting to see something change, having a dream that this shouldn't be and I want to see it changed. Um, Met in my life group on Wednesday, as I do week by week, and my friend Mal, who in the evening often sits up here, he started with a little dream a couple of years ago to see a Christian presence, a more visible Christian presence in the business that he works in. He's a contractor, works in some big businesses around the place, and two years later, that little dream has, has grown and has mushroomed, and there's a very big Christian presence, not only in that one business, but right across the businesses connected to it in the UK. He's now moved. Guess what his dream is for the new place that he's starting? It's to see a Christian presence grow. Guess what he's doing in about a month's time? He's gathering a whole load of business people, it'll be announced in this church and others across the town, to help people who are in business, in a place of work, to know how to begin to form a Christian presence and how to get people together and how to work within the, the rules of that organization. So it's honoring to God, it's honoring to the organization to get something going. A little, something, a little dream started and it's grown into a bigger dream. A friend of my father's called Charles Marnham in 1977, had a dream to help people connect in a, in a fresh and new way with the truth of the Christian good news. And he thought it'd be good to do that around some food, and he had this sort of vision that it might one day grow. Well, 40 years later, the Alpha course is run in 169 different countries, I think it is, with 30-odd million people who have done it. It started with a, a dream. Almost everything starts in the imagination. God has set that imagination there. God, uh, dreams release life, don't they? Dreams release purpose. Dreams release direction. And actually not just in the life of the dreamer, in the life of those who then get caught up in that dream. So one of the most deeply attractive things when we arrived here in 1994, ages ago, this church looked terribly different in those days. We, we tried very hard not to join Trinity, actually. <laughs> tried to find all kinds of other places, but God sort of had us come back here. And one of the reasons was because there were some dreams. There was the leadership at that time had some, some dreams, some visions about how things might be. They're not like this at the moment, but we've got a dream as to how they might be. It's been the history of this church community. I pray that it will continue to be that. Without dreams, our souls shrivel, said somebody. That's quite a dangerous thing to say if you're sitting there thinking, I haven't got a, a dream at all at the moment, I'm not a dreamer, that's for other people. Well, I have to say, tell you, the Bible says that our, our souls shrink when we don't have a, a dream, a God-given dream to pursue. They did some research on this in uh, the concentration camps, you probably know this. Uh, how was it, what was the difference between those people who survived and even thrived and did well under those terrible conditions versus those who didn't and succumbed to all kinds of malnutrition and, and uh, depression and disease and often death? Well, one of the reasons was that they, had, they found reasons for hope to burn brightly. Viktor Frankl was one of those. And in a, a speech he gave um, after he'd survived the concentration camps, he said this to the group of people that he was talking to, there's only one, one reason why I'm here today. What kept me alive was you, this crowd in front of me. Others gave up hope, but I dreamed. I dreamed that someday I would be here telling you how I, Viktor Frankl, survived the Nazi concentration camp. I've never been here before. I've never seen any of you before. I've never given this speech before, but in my dreams, in my dreams, I've stood before you and said these words a thousand times. 
I think the question isn't, why should we dream? Why have a dream? Why, why does that matter? I think the question is, if God has made us to dream, what is it that prevents our dreams? What is it that gets in the way of our dreams? We're, if we're made to dream, to hope in God-inspired ways, what stops us from doing that? That's the real question. If we feel that we're not in touch with dreams. And again, I'm not going to dwell on this particularly. I want to get back into the story. But let me just put a few on the screen, just a few dream blockers and allow your, your eye to rove over them just briefly. Age, I think, can be one of them. Again, there's some neurological research I, I read this week which says that um, as we grow older, there is a shift from our right brain imagination towards our left brain logic. There's a kind of gradual shift that takes place neurologically as we get older. Therefore, a tendency to begin to live less out of imagination and more out of memory. Some really interesting research. Goes against the grain, actually, because aging does. We weren't designed to die. Wasn't part of God's original plan. So that's not a great part of aging where we begin to live out of memory, not imagination. Instead of creating the future, we settle and kind of re repeat the past and live in those patterns that are familiar. So what happens? We stop circling Jericho. We stop going after dreams. Will you dare to dream again? I want to say actually that the more spiritually mature we get, this, maybe this is controversial, I've just thought of it, the more spiritually mature we get, I want to say the more we should dream. Because I think the more we've banked experiences of a faithful God, and the more you've banked experiences of a faithful God, the more you dare to trust, and the more you dare to trust, the more you dare to dream. Disappointment, I reckon that's common enough human experience. We all get disappointed where things don't go our way. Maybe you're sitting there and you, you know very well you've had a dream. You, maybe you've had lots. Maybe you don't put the title dream over them. They come in all shapes and sizes. Maybe it was just longings or whatever. But you're disappointed because it didn't work out how you wanted. We've all had that experience to lesser or greater extents. But maybe what that's done is it's taken away your desire. You're not going to go there again. You don't want to risk dreaming again because you don't want to risk the feeling of being disappointed again and having a dream crush. It's very hard. It's too costly, the fear of failure. Maybe it's about resignation. You've just kind of you know, been ground down and given up. Or worse, cynicism. I put that word up there. That's deadly. It's the opposite of faith. Cynicism is almost literally deadly. It kills things. What's the point? It won't work. There's no point. Busyness. How about that as a dream blocker? My life is so full, stuffed with activity. I feel I'm on this kind of treadmill. I haven't really stopped. I haven't really got time to dream dreams. Uh, life is very full on. Uh, I'm in kind of reactive mode. I'm reacting to stuff. I don't have time to proact and think about this with the kind of priority I might want to give it. I haven't got time. So dreams don't happen. Be careful with that one about I haven't got time, by the way, when you're talking to God. <laughs> what you're effectively saying to him is he got it wrong. He didn't create enough time for you. Is that what you're saying? Is that what I'm saying when I say I haven't got enough time? It's about priority, isn't it? Comfort, I reckon that's one of the biggest dream blockers. I reckon it's one of the biggest, one of the most seductive idols. It certainly is in my life. Because we love to be comfortable. We just do. It's the default of the human heart. We love to be comfortable. We don't naturally opt for discomfort. So maybe sitting here, many of us are comfortable. We have our basic needs met. Life is pretty good. Maybe family stuff is good. Maybe work stuff is good. We've got a home over our heads. We've got clothes on our backs. We've got food in our bellies. We've got material comfort and friends and so on. And my comfort zone, therefore, exerts a very strong, very strong influence and pressure on me to stay within it. Why? Because it's comfortable. So we become what? Apathetic. Apathetic in Greek. Without passion without dream, without imagination, without propulsion outwards, we get lazy. 
Maybe low self-worth, maybe that's a dream blocker for you. Others can dream, but, but I haven't got what it takes. It's not for me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not big enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. I don't have a, a high view of myself, and, and therefore I don't see myself as somebody who, who might go after this thing that you're calling a dream. That doesn't sound like me. And on and on, some very effective dream blockers. There are many more. Point is that God has made us to dream. So we need to ask if we're not, what's getting in the way? Will you dare to dream? Will any dream do? What kind of dreams are we talking about? Will any dream do? As Joseph Wright in the Technicolor Dreamcoat when he sang, any dream will do. I drew back the curtains, remember the song? <laughs> I won't sing it. Any dream will do. No. For the people of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not that any old dream will do. We live in a, a culture which talks about dreams in all kinds of ways. Some of them are okay. Some of them are not the kind of dreams we're talking about. Back to the story of Nehemiah who dared to dream. By no means an exhaustive list. But here's some of the features of, of the way that he dreamt and how it came about. And allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you as we're asking ourselves this question. Are you, are you daring to dream? Firstly is pain. Pain is a fertile ground. Let's just mark the moment. What happened was he heard some very difficult news which was extremely painful for him. But from that fertile ground of pain, of discomfort, arose a dream. So often the way, pain is fertile soil for birthing godly dreams. Just, on, just yesterday uh, on the television I caught um, uh, a little episode, it was in the news actually, it was a, a feature on the news, and there was a man there whose son very unfortunately had either died, I, I joined the program late, or in an accident lost it was, uh, his arm as a toddler. And this man was an engineer. And in the pain and the distress of seeing his toddler uh, having to cope with... Um, no arm, this man had designed, it had propelled him to have a dream. And it, what it propelled him to do was to design a prosthetic arm for toddlers, which was much more effective than anything else which is available. It was extraordinary. Out of pain, a dream happened. It's a member of our wider family whose um, wife died from pancreatic cancer. Very sad. But in the, the morning of her loss, uh, in, in, in somebody, a man who wasn't known for his proactivity or his dreaming in this way, there was a propulsion to dream a little bit differently. And he began to support a, a small charity and has, he's got, there's this kind of a yearning and a bit of a longing began to stir out of a place of pain to do some fundraising and other things to support people who are uh, looking to improve treat, treatments and early interventions into cancer and that kind of thing. Never waste pain. There's a bigger message in that, but in this context, never waste pain. God doesn't waste stuff. Nurture holy discomfort. That might be the next thing. Nehemiah gets this report of, of Jerusalem. It's broken down. It's painful. It stirs him in, in this reaction to do something. Here's a need, he says. Here's an opportunity. Here's something that's not happening that needs to happen, and I'm going to go for it. An emotion is attached to that. That's not comfortable. He's not comfortable with the news, but instead of suppressing the news, he allows the discomfort to grow. Friends, we must al allow holy discomfort to grow, what Bill Hybels calls a godly discontent. Because if we're stirred by something and it's not comfortable and we don't like it, normally our instinct is to squash it and to, to push it away because we don't like discomfort. But if it's a godly thing, if it's a good thing, if it's a holy discontent, don't squash it. Let it be the sand in the, in the oyster, as it were. Nurture it. Allow it to grow. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Fuel it. Feed it. Allow emotions to be attached to it. Holy discomfort is a really motivating thing. Think about Nehemiah. He, he, he did here. He then took responsibility for it. 
And in a culture that's not great at taking responsibility, this really matters, doesn't it? He didn't palm it off on somebody else. He didn't get the sad news, allow it to affect him, go, that's terrible, something needs to be done, I wonder who can do it. He took responsibility. Friends, are you somebody who takes responsibility? Do you own your thing? Or do you want somebody to fulfill the need that you have spotted or the lack or the yearning or whatever it is? So vital when you've got holy discomfort that leads to, to, to a godly dream. Own it. Do something with it. Don't make it somebody else's issue. Sure, others might join in as you sow vision and whatever. Others might participate. You might find they've got the same dream and you join forces. But don't be somebody who says, I've, this should happen. I wonder who can do it. <laughs> just occasionally. Very, very rarely, I have to say, but just occasionally, one or two folks in the, in the church family will come to me and they'll say something like, Tim, what's Trinity doing for this group of people that I have a, a, a longing for? What, what's Trinity doing? Why isn't Trinity doing this for, the, for that group? Uh, first, in brackets, I want to say, who's Trinity <laughs> in that context? Is that it? Trinity is not an it over there. If you're a member of the family, it's an us, it's a we, it's a you. So I generally, I hope graciously, I hope gently say, well, that's a, that's a great question. That's clearly something that you're, you're motivated by. I, I wonder what your own answer to the question is. And sometimes from those beginnings, you know, helping somebody to take responsibility for their own yearning, something begins. Pray, 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 pray. Godly dreams will only ever get off the ground if they're birthed in prayer, surrounded by prayer. Nehemiah is an extraordinary book about prayer. If you want to study prayer and how to pray, read Nehemiah. It's punctuated all the way along with amazing uh, verses and insights into the prayer life of Nehemiah and how he gets others praying. Verse four, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. If you have a dream that you can already identify, I bet a godly dream, I bet it was birthed in prayer. I bet it's being nurtured in prayer if it is being nurtured. You have to soak stuff in prayer. And if you haven't got a dream, pray first. Nehemiah, he didn't just think this up, by the way. He didn't just decide, oh, this is a really good idea to, for me to go back. And, and you know, I've got this dream, and he, and he thinks up. He, whilst the, the, the text might read like that in the first chapter, that's not how he sees it. When he arrives in chapter 2 at uh, Jerusalem, and he goes to inspect um, the walls, and he takes some other people with him, he says this, I think the verse is on the screen, I set out during the night with a few others to kind of inspect the, inspect the city. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do. That's how he sees it. He doesn't see it as his good idea. He sees it as God's initiative, something that God has planted that he's cooperating with. So we need to be prayerful. Allow God's initiative to settle in our hearts and then respond to it. And dreams get birthed. Next, godly dreams are for the glory of God, not for the praise of man. This is a big one, isn't it? Nehemiah's prayer and the way he goes about pursuing the dream that God has given him, that God has birthed in his heart, it makes it pretty clear that he is not doing this in order to promote himself. He does this out of fear of the Lord and out of a concern for the name of his God that has been dishonored in the broken down city of, of Jerusalem. He doesn't do it for self-aggrandizement. This is a really big one, isn't it? And friends, this is one of the key distinguishing marks, let's be honest, isn't it, between a God dream and any old dream. That it's for the glory of God, dreams that bring honor to God rather than uh, glory to me or fame to me or wealth to me or status to me or reputation to me or a pat on the back to me or even a sense of satisfaction to me or sense of fulfillment to me and my dream. Although satisfaction and fulfillment often come along the way as byproducts. Many a building, even like this, says on the outside, to the glory of God. 
and not for us to question anybody's motive, by the way. Never, ever for us to judge the motive. But just because something says on the outside to the glory of God doesn't necessarily mean that the heart motive behind it is to the glory of God. Only God judges the heart. We're not to judge the hearts of another, but we, we are to check our own motives and check the motives for our own dreams, especially, may I say, uh, when we're involved in kind of church, when they might involve churchy ministry kind of uh, dreams. I might be somebody, I certainly am someone. I've, I have dreams connected to Trinity, for example, or I have dreams connected to my family. I have to keep a check on my heart from time to time. Tim, why are you dreaming this thing? Is your longing for that thing to go well because you're after the glory of God? And not the praise of man or not because somebody's going to say, you know, what a good dad you are or what a good church leader you are or something like that. Motives matter. Motives will never be pure, but a godly dream is for the glory of God, not for the praise of man. Dreams can become idols so very easily, can't they? We go after our dream. We call them my dream. Vanity projects ultimately is how they end up. And they're idols just like any other. We can worship the dream, not the God of the dream. Godly dreams require faith in God. Pretty obvious in a series on faith in God, but it's the whole point of, of the series really, isn't it? A godly dream, a God-given dream, if you've got one, you're nurturing it. It will require faith in God. It will actually require it. It won't be an optional extra. Having no dream, never choosing to have a dream, by definition requires no faith. There's a kind of Christian fatalism, I think, that says, I can't make a difference. I really can't. I'm very little. I can't make a difference. God can do amazing things, sure, but I can't make a difference. Um, God will do what he'll do. It's all up to him, um, and it'll happen anyway, and I don't join in. That's fatalism, in my view. No faith is required for that position, is it, at all? But the other end of the spectrum, a kind of Christian activism says, I've got this dream, I've got the skills to make it happen, I've got the resources to make it happen, and as long as I work very, very hard at it, it will happen. Well, something will happen for sure, and certainly something will be achieved, absolutely, if that's where you're at. But it won't be a God-given dream that you'll be fulfilling. It will be something less than that. Why? Because that activism requires no faith. All God-given dreams will require faith. In him, We can't achieve them under our own steam. Nehemiah was under no illusions if you read the story. He could not fulfill the dream of rebuilding Jerusalem with, with just his own human effort alone. Time and time again in the story, that's, that's reflected. He couldn't even actually get out of um, the court where he was a thousand miles east in Iran without God's help. He says in verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. It wasn't because I was polite or skillful or clever or good with words. No, God was involved. I had to exercise faith even to leave the difficult situation that he, he was in, let alone to travel and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. A little bit later in, at the end of uh, chapter 2, the God of heaven will give us success. Sure, I'll deploy my skill, my brain, my intellect, all, all my gifts. I'll put them at, my at the disposal of God to make this work. I'll give it my best effort, but faith is required in my God. Simon Gilbo, you know, our, our friend, my friend, dangerous friend, lives in Burundi. He, he, he says this in his book. He's got a great chapter on dreams. He says, there are some people who live in a dream world. There are others who only live in the daily grind of reality. And then there are those who turn one into the other says we're not to be daydreamers, that's, an, that's a self-indulgent waste of time, but we are to be dreamers of the day who face reality as it is, but by faith in the God of the impossible, partner with his grace through prayer 
to see that reality transformed more into the likeness of the dreams that he gives us. I love that. Big dreams. Simon's a big dreamer. Maybe there's some big dreamers in the room. Be small dreamers, big dreamers. The key is, are we God dreamers? But big dreams honor a big God. There's a link there, isn't there? Nehemiah believed in a big God, a God who could do immeasurably more. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? A godly dream isn't based on what I think I can do. It's based on what I think God can do. So key to shift our, our focus. No, it's not what I can do. It's what God can do. What does Ephesians 3 say? Many of you know this verse. The message version puts it like this. God can do anything you know. Far more than you could ever imagine, dream, or guess, or request, even in your wildest dreams. So think of the, the most extraordinary, the most elaborate, the most far-fetched dream that you could possibly imagine. God can do way more than that, says the Bible, says the word of God. Will we believe it? Will we dare to dream big? The size of my dreams, the size of your dreams, will be linked to the size of your God. Somebody wrote that book, didn't they? Your God is too small. Friends, would we not love a bigger picture of a bigger God? Why? Because it will inspire bigger dreams. The size of our dreams will, will be linked to our view of God, how big we see him to be, to be. So let's pray to know and trust more in the greatness of God and let the size of my God determine the size of my dreams and not the size of my gifts or my capability or my resources. God is infinitely bigger than my biggest dreams. Godly dreams are connected to his eternal plans. We're nearly there. This is the penultimate one. It's not hard to see, is it, in Nehemiah's rebuilding of the, of the city of Jerusalem, that, that place where God had set his presence, the rebuilding of the temple, to see that this dream is intimately and directly connected to the purposes and promises and plans and declarations of God, connected to his eternal purposes. If a dream is from God, it will somewhere, somehow connect to God's big purposes and God's plans for his world. We're servants of the king. We're serving his agenda. And what is that great agenda? What is his overwhelming plan that we're serving? It's this. He's building a family, remember? God is building a family with members from every nation and every tribe and every language and every people group. And when everybody is in the family that he knows is going to be in the family, then Jesus will return. And his kingdom will come fully and heaven on earth will be complete and for all eternity that will be true. That's the big plan. And church is the agent of that plan. So any dream from God is going to connect somehow, somewhere to that plan. Because that's what God's doing. Jesus gives us his dream. It's called the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in my name, teach them everything that I've told you. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. The Great Commission, that's our commission. We know that. We need to embrace it. It's why it's the vision statement. It's the, the, the mission statement over this church and, frankly, every church to make committed followers of Jesus who change the world because that's what he's called us to be and to do. So if God's going to ha have a dream for your life, a specific dream or many of them, it will somehow play its role in that and be connected to that overarching plan and to the growth of the church and to the extension of the kingdom and to the building of his family and, therefore, it will have that eternal dimension embedded within it because that's what his story and his plan are about. Finally, godly dreams are going to get opposed. I don't need to persuade you very much about this. Nehemiah struggles all the way along, all kinds of things. Serving the Persian king, he's got to get out of that. He's got to get a, a thousand miles through foreign territory. He's got to um, set about building Jerusalem in the face of 
Huge opposition. You might remember a couple of characters pop up. They're, they're, they're champions of the opposition. Sam Ballot and Tobiah give him a really hard time all the way along. We will get a hard time if we choose to pursue godly dreams. You know that. At every stage, the world, the flesh, the devil, all of them will conspire. The world will say, ridiculous, why are you doing that? Don't bother, you're being a fool. Noah, what are you building a boat in the middle of the desert for? Waste of time. Martin Luther King, are you kidding? You can't turn the whole tide of American history and fight for racial harmony. It's not going to work. Wilberforce, you're not going to succeed. The world will say this is not logical, it's not sensible, it's not rational. Do something else with your, your time, your money. You're weird, you're extreme, you're intolerant. It's too big a risk. Your flesh might say similar things. It's too much effort, Tim. It's too costly. Don't go after that. You'll wear yourself down. You know you've been disappointed in the past. You'll only be disappointed again in the future. You're not good enough anyway. You're not strong enough. Remember Gideon, Moses, all these characters in the Bible? They all complained when God gave them the dream. No, I can't do that. Send someone else. Spiritual attack, sometimes it's even more direct than that. So we can be certain that God-given dreams will meet with resistance. But here we are, here's Nehemiah. He saw his dream fulfilled. Not everybody sees their dreams fulfilled. Martin Luther King didn't in his own lifetime. He was killed before the greater fulfillment of his dream. Doesn't make them wrong to go after. There's an eternal dimension to them. Nehemiah did see his dream fulfilled. The Bible says that 52 extraordinary days later, after lots of ups and downs, lots of adventure, lots of cooperation with others, lots of drawing others into the dream, the walls of the city were rebuilt. He re-established worship in the temple. He ruled as governor for 12 years. What kept him going? What fueled his vision? Well, it was a God dream. God had planted this dream in his heart. Sure, he worked really hard. You can tell that, read the story. He stayed focused, that matters. He collaborated with others, that matters. He used all the gifts that he'd been given, leadership especially, that matters. He persevered, that matters. He exercised a lot of courage. He didn't let fear stand in his way, that matters. And on top of it all, there's no, these, these aren't secrets. There's no secret to success, is there? It's an open secret. Above all of that, he, he was obedient to God's voice and he prayed. And he trusted in a great big God for this great big God-sized dream. And he prayed and he kept praying and he exercised faith in God. And it's prayer that connects faith, which is our part, to God's grace and power, which is his part. And he kept on doing it. It's daring faith. It's faith that dares to dream what God dreams. It's Daring faith that changes lives ultimately. It's daring faith that extends the kingdom. It's daring faith that transforms the world. And it's daring faith always that honors the name of the king. So let's stand.